Good morning. The Gospel reading is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 910. This reading lets us know that John the Baptist has been arrested and Jesus is starting to gather his disciples. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. You know, when we think of Jonah, most people think of the big fish or the whale. In fact, when I Googled images this week, that's the only thing that ever came up. But actually, the whale plays only a small part and isn't really kind of part of the main theme of the story, so to speak. So listen to the rest, the second half of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going for a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? 
Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow, and it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Have you heard the one about the rabbi and the cantor and the president of the synagogue? They went on vacation together in Borneo. And they went on a walk, and unfortunately, they got so far off the beaten path that they were captured by a tribe of headhunters. They were brought before the chief, and the chief said to them, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to kill you. That's just the way we make our living. But we are not an unsophisticated people, and so we are willing to give you one wish before you die. So the chief turned to the rabbi, and the rabbi, in terror and tears, finally splurted out, okay, I guess I would like to be able to preach the sermon I preached at the last Yom Kippur one more time. And then the chief turned to the cantor, and the cantor said, I too would like to sing the prayer that we sung, that I sung, at the last Holy Day services. And then the chief turned to the president of the synagogue, and the president of the synagogue said, kill me first. <laughs> the teller of that joke was Rabbi Bob Alper, who spoke this past summer at the Chautauqua Institute in New York on the spirituality of laughter. We shared a DVD of his talk with the Forum before Christmas. Remarkably, Albert is both a rabbi and a stammed-up comic. Perhaps even more remarkably, he is the unofficial human advisor to a humor advisor to Pope Francis. Uh, someone understanding that the Pope has a good sense of humor, and indeed even enjoys laughing himself, sponsored a contest, and to be the unofficial humor advisor to the Pope. More, you had to submit a joke by video, and more than 4,000 jokes were submitted from 47 countries. And the one from Rabbi Alpert was the winning one. This was the joke he told. My wife and I have been married for 48 wonderful years. 
and we are so in sync that the very day I got my hearing aid is the very day she stopped mumbling. In his talk, Rabbi Alper spent some time reflecting on why it seems that such a high proportion of comedians and comic writers are Jewish. He spoke of how humor was developed as a tool for coping with persecution and danger of which the Jewish people sadly have known more than their share. But he also noted the word play and indeed humor in the rabbinical writings and even in the Bible itself. Jonah, a book that is, of course, holy text for both Jews and Christians alike, is a good example. Jonah is a funny or strange book in many respects, while the rest of the prophetic books are primarily collections of sayings by a prophet. Jonah alone is a book that primarily describes the adventures of a prophet. In the words of one scholar, the book of Jonah is difficult to classify. Is it a fable or farce, serious history or salacious satire, or is it with its combination of a life-saving fish and repentant cows, a little of all these things? There indeed is a comic touch displayed throughout the book of Jonah, if you're paying attention. There's the impossible assignment for Jonah to go to the capital of Israel's enemy. That's what Nineveh is. Israel's enemy, the most powerful country at that time in the world, and for him to preach repentance to them. And then there's the foolishness of Jonah, which the children recognize, thinking that he could somehow escape from God and sail beyond the reach of God. What a contrast Jonah is when compared to the disciples who respond so readily to Jesus when he says, follow me and do so immediately. And then when Jonah sails to get away from God, he does nothing on the ship. He speaks no prophecies, and yet hardened pagan sailors are praying, praying more than Jonah does. And of course, who can forget Jonah in the whale? or being spit upon, spit out on the beach. If you remember Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther movies, and you might say that Jonah is the Inspector Clouseau of prophets, people repent despite his incompetence as a prophet. And boy, do they repent. Jonah's prophecy to the Ninevites is just five words in Hebrew. And there's no mention of God, No mention of any possibility of reprieve or any word of hope. And yet, Jonah tells us the book, each and every Ninevite repents, fasts, and covers himself or herself in sackcloth. Even the animals are commanded to abstain from food and drink and cover themselves with sackcloth. And then there's the crowning detail. When Jonah finds out that his seemingly fatal and futile mission is born incredible success, he gets mad at God, complains at God, kill me now. He literally says to God, much like that synagogue president, if you cannot smile when you're reading the book of Jonah, then you're missing the point. But of course, Just because the author of Jonah has a good sense of humor does not mean that a serious point 
is not being made. That is also something that Jewish humor has always known. During World War II, a resident near Fort Benning, Georgia, called the base and wanting to welcome the troops there, invited someone to send over soldiers so they could have a home-cooked meal at her house. She was connected with a sergeant with whom she talked by phone, explained what she wanted. He said, sure, next week I'll send you five soldiers. But before she hung up, she said, and sergeant, none of them can be Jewish. Do we understand? And the sergeant said, yes, ma'am, I do understand. So the next week came, and when she opened the door, there were five soldiers, five African-American soldiers. And she, obviously shocked, it was 1942, said, I'm sorry, there must be some mistake. One of the privates said to her, no, ma'am, Sergeant Rosenblum never makes mistakes. <laughs> Here, too, the author of Jonah has a serious message to give. The book of Jonah reminds us about the persistent love of God. Jonah gets most things wrong, but he gets this right when he says of God in chapter 3, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Look at Jonah. He himself is a beneficiary of that love and mercy. Although he directly disobeys God going west towards Spain rather than east towards Nineveh, God does not reject or forget Jonah. And when Jonah is thrown into the sea and makes no effort to try to save his own life, God does send a whale to save him. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, where I started reading today, we hear these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God does not give up on Jonah. God gives Jonah a second chance. Jonah in Hebrew means dove, and the dove was often a symbol for Israel. So the story of Jonah may also be the story of Israel, the people who have been chosen and given a special calling and yet disobey God too frequently and turn away from God too often. And yet, God does not give up on Israel. Indeed, this is the whole arc of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God keeps giving God's people assignments. They keep messing up. But God keeps giving second and third and fourth chances. The God we encounter in Jonah and in the rest of the Bible is a God who made us in love, who keeps confronting our sin with grace and love, and who never gives up on us out of love. Jonah is not telling us that God is indifferent or oblivious about our sin. No, this is a story of repentance as well as of second chances. And Jonah is not proclaiming that God bullies us or chases us down to rob us of our freedom. Jonah remains free to obey or disobey. The book of Jonah, in fact, if you notice, ends with a question rather than a command. But Jonah, the book, reminds us that our sin need not have the last word because our God is a persistent God and we can never outrun the love and grace of God. This is the good news. 
God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishment. But that is also the bad news, at least for Jonah. Because God is willing to show the same love and mercy to Jonah's enemy, the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't like that. He cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he wants God to enforce those words. In fact, he goes outside the city and just looks forward to seeing it happen. When it comes to himself, Jonah is thankful for God's mercy and for second chances. But when it comes to the Ninevites, Jonah wants no mercy, no second chances. He wants punishment. What good is it to have a God, even a gracious God, Jonah wonders, if that God is going to treat our enemies the same way God treats us? Kill me first, he shouts. What about us? Do we ever suffer from the Jonah syndrome? Are we quick to claim God's grace for ourselves, but slow to extend that grace to others? Do we ever resent God for being gracious to others, especially those who have let us down or hurt us? Do we ever get angry that God might love the enemies that we would prefer to hate? Here again, the last verse of the book of Jonah, the question that God poses for Jonah And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also many animals? The book of Jonah reminds us that when God looks down on this earth, God does not see any flags. God does not see any borders, whether or not there's a wall or not. God does not see any races. All those borders and boundaries and separations and differences are human-made. When God looks down, God sees his beloved creatures, the ones he made in love, the ones he continues to love so much that he sent his only son into the world to save. The book of Jonah does not just give us a statement about who we are and who the rest of the world is. Jonah also gives us instructions about what we are to do. Like Jonah, we've been given a mission about sending us out. The mission that Jesus gives to the disciples. As one commentator notes, the book of Jonah speaks a word of criticism against people who prefer huddling and cuddling in the safety of their own groups, to being about the task to which Jesus called them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see, in the Bible, to be chosen is to have a job to do. To be blessed is a call to be a blessing to others. We go about that task without arrogance. After all, the sailors and the Ninevites have more exemplary behavior than Jonah does. In times of crisis, the sailors pray and act, and the Ninevites repent and clean up the violence in their cities. Sometimes when we go forth, we need to be more students than teachers, 
ready to watch and listen rather than speak. And we carry out our mission trusting in the power and grace of God, remembering that we cannot give up on anyone because God doesn't. What the response of the king and people of Nineveh shows us is that people may surprise us and be hungry for the good news that we have been given to share. You never know when the seeds will take root and bloom. The establishment of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a remarkable and pioneering institution. Never before, as far as we know in the history of the world, has a country sought to move forward from despotism and oppression to democracy by, on the one hand, exposing and naming the atrocities committed under apartheid, and yet, on the other hand, still seeking reconciliation rather than vengeance and punishment. The man chosen by President Mandela to head the commission was Archbishop Tutu. In his book, Future Without Forgiveness, Tutu spoke of the theology that underlay his vision for the commission's work. He didn't think that their work was possible without such a theology. And that theology is more in keeping with the message of the book of Jonah than it is with the resentment of the prophet Jonah. He writes... Frequently, we in the commission were quite appalled at the depth of depravity to which human beings could sink. Theology reminded me that however diabolical the act, it did not turn the perpetrator into a demon. We had to distinguish between the deed and the perpetrator. Theology said they still, despite the awfulness of their deeds, remain children of God with the capacity to repent, to be able to change. Tudu continues, in this theology, we can never give up on anyone because our God was one who had a particularly soft spot for sinners. God does not give up on anyone. For God loved us all from eternity. God loves us now, and God will always love us, all of us, good and bad, forever and ever, he writes. That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, Jonah declares. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Have you heard the one about the God who asked, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also many animals? Or the one about the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son. That God, that God gets the last laugh. Amen. In response to that God, let us stand and say what we believe about that God with words from the Apostles' Creed adapted by the Iona community. We believe in God above us, maker and sustainer of all life. We believe in God beside us, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, born of a woman, servant of the poor, tortured and nailed to a tree. A man of sorrows, he died forsaken. 
He descended to the earth, to the place of death. On the third day, He rose from the tomb. He ascended into heaven to be everywhere present, and His kingdom will come on earth. We believe in God within us, the Holy Spirit of Pentecostal fire, life-giving breath of the church, spirit of healing and forgiveness, source of resurrection and of eternal life. Amen.